All right, so now that uh, you've heard some very interesting stories about my life, um, I'll have to remember to return the favor to Ted at some point. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, obviously things don't always go as planned. And, uh, and as a planner, as some guy who really likes to plan, uh, I could not have foreseen uh, my wife or then my girlfriend uh, getting uh, food sickness uh, on the day that I proposed. But um, as I think about it, 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 despite the difficulty and despite the, um, all the wrenches it threw in my plans, it was still a memorable story, and it's one that I would never trade back. Um, and, I, and I just think, uh, you know, even in hearing your sister's testimony and Adina, uh, just that God oftentimes uses trials to bring us closer to him. Uh, and that though they are difficult, uh, perhaps at the end of this life, when we are in heaven and understand the full story, we would not only understand that God used those trials, but that we wouldn't have wanted it uh, any other way. So let me just uh, pray for us as we begin some time in God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its powerful effect that it has in our lives. It is through your word that we can know you. It is through your word uh, that we uh, have learned the message of salvation. And so, Lord, we, as we turn our hearts to your word, we ask that you would bless this time, that you would help us to focus in our hearts and with our ears and with our minds so that by your word we may be sanctified. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, back in February of 2011, presidential advisor Valerie Jarrett was attending a black tie event in the Capitol. After finishing her glass of wine, they were all seated at a long table. After finishing her glass of wine, she looked to her side and just saw a, saw a man wearing a pair of pants and there was a black stripe going down the side. And so she was just assuming that the man was a waiter and so she she held up her glass and said, you know, more wine, please. When she looked up, she turned red with embarrassment when she realized that the man next to her was not a waiter, but rather was Peter Chiarelli, who was at that time the second highest ranking uh, general in the military. They both realized her mistake and uh, he was a very wonderful gentleman and said, yes, I'll get you your glass of wine, no problem. Um, but it was an embarrassing moment for her. And it was something that was put out on the news to everyone's um, enjoyment and perhaps laughing at, at her social faux pas. But if Valerie Jarrett had known who the man really was next to her, I don't think she would have treated him that way. If she had known that this was the second uh, most powerful man in the military, she wouldn't have treated him like he was some sort of waiter. And the problem was that she just didn't know who he was. She didn't bother to look. She didn't bother to understand. And, and it points to a larger principle is that we treat people based on what we think of them. We interact with people based on how we think of them, based on what we think of them. We respect people who we think should be respected. We honor people we think should be honored. And this morning, we're going to look at a very similar situation that happened from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is seated at a table with a Pharisee and an unnamed woman. 
And as we study these two people, you'll see two very different responses to Jesus. And that's why I've entitled this message this morning, A Study in Contrast. So take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke, chapter 7. We will be looking at verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Follow along with me as I read it. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little then he said to her your sins have been forgiven those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves who is this man who even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace this episode opens with simon the pharisee inviting jesus over to his house for a special meal. And since this is a special occasion, it was culturally acceptable at that time for people to just come from around the community. Uh, They didn't have to be invited. And what we're going to do this morning is look at two of these people who attend this meal. And first, let's just look at the nameless woman. So the first first, uh, part of our message this morning is the nameless woman. Now, first off, I need to make a clarification because Uh, Scripture records Jesus as being anointed twice during his earthly ministry. Uh, The first time is recorded in our passage this morning. And uh, this is about one year into Jesus' ministry. And the woman who anoints Jesus is unidentified. She is nameless. Now, there's a second time where this happens. Imagine that, someone wiping your feet with her hair. Twice. So there's a second time that this happens, and that's within weeks of Jesus' crucifixion. And the woman who does who wipes Jesus' feet with her hair the second time was Mary, the sister of Martha. So I want to make it clear that this is not Mary. This is another woman. This is a nameless woman. This is a woman we don't really know much about besides what has happened in this passage. Uh, 
And, but what we do know from this passage is that Scripture describes her in three primary ways. Firstly, they des- Scripture describes her as a known sinner. She was a known sinner. Verse 37, it says, And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, the word here for sinner is very specific. If you look at your Bible, you might have it translate the phrase as an immoral woman. Now, there are several explanations, plausible explanations, for why she was called a known sinner. First of all, she could have been a prostitute. She could have been a prostitute. Secondly, she could have been a known adulteress. It was out there in the town, and they knew that she had cheated on her husband, and so she was known to be an adulteress. And the third possibility, the least likely in my opinion, is that she was a debtor. She owed a huge amount of money to someone. But the bottom line here is that this woman is a sinner, And while we are all sinners, this woman was a known sinner. She was known as a sinner. That was her reputation. That was probably how people referred to her. That's certainly how Simon the Pharisee refers to her. He says, that sinner, not even that woman, it's that sinner of a woman. And given her reputation, it's interesting to look at how Jesus responds to this woman and to contrast it with how Simon responds to this woman. Jesus accepts her presence. He's not disturbed by her being so close to him. He doesn't, he doesn't pull back because he's frustrated that this sinner of a woman would touch him. He accepts her presence. In fact, he lets her stay in his presence. On the flip side, in contrast, Simon is probably a bit nervous. Simon, being a Pharisee, doesn't like fraternizing with unclean people. He was obsessed as a Pharisee with being ceremonially clean. Pharisees back in, the, back in those times would constantly be washing their fingers, ceremonially cleansing themselves for fear that they would be contaminated by other people, namely non-Jews. So the sinner of a woman would have made Simon extremely uncomfortable because he would be afraid of being contaminated by her. Jesus accepts her presence. He's fine with her. Simon is probably a little wary. So she's a known sinner. That is her reputation. And that's what Scripture tells us about her. Secondly, Scripture tells us that she was a desperate follower. She was a desperate follower. Verse 37, second part. It says, And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an an alabaster vial of perfume, etc. And she goes to him. Since she wasn't personally invited to this meal, and and really, if she's a known sinner in the community, she would never have warranted an invitation from a Pharisee. Uh, But since she wasn't personally invited to this meal, she crashed it. She came in uninvited. And it says that once she learned where Jesus was eating, she followed him there. She desperately follows Jesus. She found out where he was. She found out where the house was located. She went to the house uninvited so she could be with and see Jesus. And she came with him armed with a vial of perfume. Now, given what unfolds in this passage, this unnamed woman probably already knew Jesus. It's probably not not a case where they were complete strangers. She had probably heard him preach and teach around the cities and villages in the area. She probably heard a compassion in his voice that was foreign to that time period. See, the Pharisees would have treated her as an outcast, which she was. The Pharisees would have told her, get away. 
Don't, don't come too close to me. Three foot radius, you know, stay away from me. But Jesus was different. And he ministered in a way that was unlike anybody during that time. He would sit down and eat with the untouchables. He would reach out to the people that nobody wanted to talk to. Jesus was different. He shows compassion for the downtrodden. He loved and cared for the social pariahs. He touched people who were the untouchable. So here's this unnamed woman, known as a sinner in the community. Everybody knows what she's done, or has at least heard about what she's done. And she's coming out to a meal to a Pharisee's house, uninvited. She knew she would never have been personally invited. I mean, she's a known sinner. She has that kind of reputation. And who, after all, would want to hang out with somebody like that? And certainly a Pharisee would never want her close to him. She was probably risking being kicked out of the Pharisee's house. So I can imagine her secretly going in and doing her best to not be noticed just so she could be close to Jesus. Despite the very real possibility of being kicked out of this house, she came anyway. She was desperate. She wanted to find Jesus. She wanted to be with Jesus. And she wasn't going to let, you know, this Pharisee get in the way. She came boldly and desperately to follow Jesus. She was a desperate follower. She knew she was a sinner, that's for sure. Everybody else knew it, so of course she understood it. But even more than knowing that she was a sinner, she knew that she needed Christ. She was a known sinner. Secondly, she was a desperate follower. And thirdly, she was a lavish worshiper, a lavish worshiper. Let's imagine the scene as it unfolds in this passage. Simon the Pharisee is reclined at the table with Jesus and some other guests. And, and if, if you uh, know your New Testament background, you know that back in those time periods, uh, they, when they sat around the table, they wouldn't really be seated so much as laying down. The tables that they used back then was probably about the height of your coffee table. And so everybody would kind of lay around, around on pillows with their faces towards the food and their feet away from the food. Now, um, since Jesus was a poor traveling preacher, he would not have traveled by horse or by donkey or by camel. He would have walked on those dusty roads. And so, of course, you don't want your feet, your your dirty, crusty feet, to get anywhere near the food. You you want your feet as far away as possible. I remember as a kid, I loved going to the beach. Uh, It was definitely a change of pace. I I did swim team growing up, and uh, all of a sudden the pool was not so attractive to me (laughs) because I just saw it as a a place where you would just swim laps endlessly. So, you know, the beach was definitely something different, and I enjoyed playing in the surf. But I remember, you know, whenever we would walk back to my dad's car, no matter how much I tried to wash my feet in my sandals, by the time we got to the car, my my feet were just gross. So dirty, in fact, that my dad would always, you know, make sure the car was locked so that I wouldn't actually try and get into the car to dirty up, you know, our dark interior. You know, so he would say, okay, I have a towel just for this. Sit there. Don't move. Don't get in the car. Don't open the door. You know, sit down, and we're going to wash your feet so that at least we can get in. And so if you can imagine, that's just a short walk from Torrey Pines State Beach to the car, to the the car in the parking lot. So you can imagine what it would have been like for someone like Jesus and his disciples to walk day after day, hour after hour, 
out there in the dirt. Caked with dirt. And what I, what I, what I find so interesting that it, this woman, this nameless woman, as she approaches Jesus, instead of recoiling in disgust, she bends down to wash his feet. She approaches Jesus. She bends down because, again, she's away from the table and his feet are the closest thing to her. She looks down, sees his feet, says, oh, someone hasn't washed his feet. I might as well do it. And she bends down and washes his feet with three items, Scripture records. First, this nameless woman put perfume on Jesus' feet. And perfume, uh, back then, was used for burials, for rituals, and, of course, for women who wanted to smell nice. This perfume wasn't anything extraordinary. It wasn't like uh, what happens later where it's a pure nard bottle of perfume. Uh, it wasn't special, but it's important for us to understand that here, this was something that was expensive. This is something that you don't just, you know, pick up at the 99 cent store. This is something that was expensive and costly. Secondly, this nameless woman uses her tears to wipe Jesus' feet. And while the passage does not explicitly tell us why she was crying, I believe that it was probably because she was so grateful to Jesus. Jesus was the only person, the only teacher in that time period who would take the time to talk to people like her. She was used to being ignored, passed over, pushed away, excluded, ostracized. But Jesus was willing to talk to her to talk to people like her. I believe that this woman was so grateful because she had been forgiven. Based on what Jesus says later, this woman had been forgiven a lot. She had been given, forgiven a lot. And so this woman bursts into tears as a result of being forgiven. And in fact, this, this, this phrase here for began to wet his feet with her, with her tears is the same Greek word that describes rain. So this nameless woman was crying so hard, so touched by the forgiveness of Christ, that it was like she was raining tears on Jesus' feet. She comes with perfume, she comes with her tears, but lastly, this nameless woman used, this last item that this nameless woman used to wash Jesus' feet was her hair. And all you ladies know that a woman's hair is a valuable commodity. It's something that you take care of. I remember one time uh, as a bachelor, you know, as a bachelor, we, you know, as, as guys, you remember, as, as bachelors, we, uh, we make do until we have to do something, right? And, uh, you know, after diluting my shampoo bottle a few times, I realized, okay, I really need to get some shampoo. And because I wasn't that close to Costco, I went down the street to Ralph's and I remember going into Ralph's and just saying, okay, shampoo, it's got to be here somewhere. And lo and behold, I walk down this aisle and literally my senses are assaulted by all of these smells and all of these bottles and all of these, you know, these, you know, kind of these furry pictures, you know, flowers and all of this other stuff. And I'm walking down the aisle and, you know, literally I'm bewildered because I'm saying, you know, where's the shampoo and which one am I going to take? There's an entire aisle in grocery stores devoted to hair products. And, you know, since I just normally just shop at Costco, I just buy whatever's there, right? I, I don't 
I don't know that there's that much of a difference. I just figure my hair seems okay, so I think it's okay. But going to, you know, a place like Ralph's and walking through this aisle, I, I was just assaulted by all of these different types of hair care products. You, you've, got, you've got shampoo for treated hair, damaged hair, dry hair, thin hair, oily hair, permed hair, lack of hair. You know, just all sorts of stuff. And all I wanted to do was just find a bottle that I, would not, I, that I would not be embarrassed checking out with, right? I just said, you know, just give me a man hair. Like, you know, just, I don't know, just a nondescript bottle, you know, so that when I check out, people don't give me the look like, mm, maybe it's for his wife or something. And all this, you know, while we chuckle, and the next time you go into the grocery store, you'll probably look. Uh, all this is to indicate just how much we as a society value hair. We value beauty. And, and of course, one of the primary features of beauty is, is hair. In fact, I think some guys, you know, I'm a young adult and college pastor, so you know that basically I get to talk about dating all the time. You know, if there's a conversation I have with a young adult, especially a guy that goes, exceeds 15 minutes, I guarantee you he's going to ask something about dating, something about girls, something about relationships. And a lot of these guys, you know, they all have lists. And, and many of these guys would not, would, would, without hesitation, admit that they hope to find a woman with nice hair. Yeah, they, they think godly and everything too, so I'm not going to throw them under the bus. But, you know, when we talk about other things, they're like, yeah, I want, hair's nice. You know, long hair, straight hair, you know, shiny hair. The hair, you know, from the L'Oreal commercials. Um, anyways, so, so let's think about it, right? This, this nameless woman comes and sees Jesus and takes what is a universal and historically recognized sign of beauty, her hair, the result of a lifetime of meticulous care and washing, and she takes her hair to wash Jesus' feet. That is the kind of woman that she was. That is the kind of lavish worshiper she was. She took one of the most beautiful features of a woman to clean one of the ugliest parts of the human body. This woman was certainly a lavish worshiper. And though she remains nameless in Scripture, she is remembered for this act of devotion. I have no doubt that as I read this passage, oh, I know that one. Even though she was a known sinner, she knew that she could approach Jesus. And we also know that she was a desperate follower. She tracked down where Jesus was staying. She found out where he was eating at the hour that he was eating there. And she went and made her way there. Despite the fact that she would likely be thrown out of the house, she wanted to make sure that she went and saw Jesus because she was a desperate follower. And when she got there, she looked down at his feet, realized his feet are not clean, and I don't really have a towel or anything to wash his feet, so I will use my hair. She didn't just worship Jesus casually. She wasn't just kind of a, a fair-weather follower. She was, she was a die-hard, kind of dedicated disciple. She was abundant with her love, with her affection and worship. So much so that when you read the account, and if you were really to imagine this play out on, the, on a movie screen, you'd probably feel a little scared or a little uneasy about what this woman was doing. And that is the portrait of this nameless woman. 
And yet there's another person in this story. The other person is the self-righteous Simon. As opposed to the nameless woman, we have this self-righteous Simon. And he is really the opposite of her. This nameless woman's worship is so lavish that it makes you uncomfortable. And Simon is so callous that it makes you wonder what in the world's going on in his heart. And the passage describes Simon in three primary ways. First is he was a Pharisee. Simon was a Pharisee. Verse 36 says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And we learn later that that Pharisee was named Simon. Now Simon was a Pharisee, and back in those days it meant something to be a Pharisee. We stand thousands of years, we study and look at the Bible thousands of years after this time period. And so we don't have the same perspective as many of those people did in the first century. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about Pharisees and why they were respected. We know that back in this time period, the Romans were in power, right? The Romans were the ruling party. After defeating the Israelites, the Romans decided to involve themselves in Jewish life. And what they did was they decided to appoint certain Jews to run the temple. Now, of course, if you're a Jew, this this would infuriate you. This would anger you. How dare these Roman pagans come in and tell us how to worship God? How dare they interfere in our worship service? But despite most of the people, most of the Jews not liking this practice from the Romans, very few people would say anything. They were too afraid. They knew how powerful the Roman army was. They knew how brutal Roman soldiers could be. And so nobody spoke up, save a small group of people. And this small group of people spoke up and told Rome that we don't want you interfering in our temple worship practice. We know that you are over us, but we don't want you to interfere in our worship of God. We don't think that's right. And those people, that small group of people, would eventually become known as the Pharisees. And so, you know, thousands of years later, after Christ, we look at the Pharisees as, oh man, they're horrible. But back in that time period, to be a Pharisee meant something respectable. It meant that you were admired for who you were, for what you stood for, for the principles you lived by. You were super Jew. You were super godly. When, when the parents, you know, talking to their little children, I want you to love God. I want you to take firm stances on, every, on everything. I want you to be fervent. For, like that Pharisee, yeah, be like that. Don't be like this nameless woman. Right? Don't be like this sinner of a woman. To be a Pharisee back then meant that you were respected for your devotion to God. You were given the best seats wherever you went. You were followed, you were admired, and you were respected, generally. Pharisees were seen by the normal people back then as super Jews. They were the super Jews. And that's the kind of man Simon was. He was a Pharisee. But secondly, he was also an unsympathetic critic. And he reveals his critical nature in how he treats Jesus and how he treats this nameless woman First of all, he's critical of Jesus. And from the gospel accounts, for those of you who have been walking with Christ for a while, you know that Jesus and the Pharisees are not exactly best friends. They're not bosom buddies. 
they were not on good terms at all. Jesus frequently condemned the Pharisees. He told them, he, he, he condemned them for being hypocrites, for lacking true love for their fellow man. And in response, the Pharisees frowned upon Jesus because he dared to mingle with sinners like this unknown woman. But at this point in time, Jesus has been ministering about a year, a year and a half, and the Pharisees are still trying to figure out Jesus. And so, you know, this dinner, this, this lunch, probably it's a lunch, the lunch that they're having is sort of like an interview. Simon is watching Jesus on behalf of the Pharisees, and he wants to see how is this Jesus different from us? Is he one of us or is he against us? Shall we embrace him and endorse him or shall we reject him and refute him? Who is this Jesus? So in all likelihood, Simon was evaluating Jesus. He was sitting there criticizing and and critiquing everything that Jesus did. In verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, when he saw that this woman, this nameless woman, came and wiped his feet with her hair, when Simon saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, notice that the Pharisee says, if Jesus really knew, which basically implies that he didn't think Jesus knew. He didn't buy the idea that Jesus was some sort of prophet. No, you're not from God. Why in the world would you let this sinner of a woman touch you? Why would you do that? And Simon looked down on Jesus for allowing this nameless woman sinner to touch him. But Simon also shows that he's very critical of this woman why would, why would Jesus allow this woman who is touching him, why would she, he allow her to touch him? Because she is a sinner. You, you can almost see the, the hate kind of drip off of his tongue. He saw her as a sinner, plain and simple. He saw her as someone who was beneath him in the social ladder of life. Simon was a follower of the Mosaic Law, And he followed it to the T. He followed every little detail. He knew God's law and he tried to live it out to the best of his ability. In fact, he even created, as a Pharisee, created other rules to help him, prevent him from breaking the real rules. But this sinner of a woman that was standing before him, that was seated at his table, that dared to transgress and walk into his house, this sinner of a woman had messed up. And so in Simon's mind, this woman was a fool. She is a fool. She knew God's word. She violated God's word. She was a known sinner. She had messed up. There was no coming back from that. She was damaged goods as far as Simon cared. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Simon rolled his eyes whenever he saw her, whenever she passed by. Perhaps he would go to the other side of the street just so that he could maintain his distance from this sinner of a woman. I'm sure Simon thought to himself, how dare this vile, wretched sinner of a woman enter into my house? I'm going to have to ceremonially cleanse my whole house. Simon was a Pharisee. He kept the law as well as he could, and he was respected for it. People thought that he was super godly. But underneath that veneer of ritualism was an unsympathetic critic. 
He was extremely critical. He looked down on anyone who did not conform to his standard of righteousness. But thirdly, the self-righteous Simon was a poor host. He was a Pharisee. He was an unsympathetic critic. And lastly, he was a poor host. And Jesus accuses him of being a poor host. He actually calls him out. Jesus says, look how you treat me. Who do you think I am? Verses 44 to 46. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Jesus first points out that Simon did not give him water for his feet. You know, it was customary during that time period to have someone wash your guest's feet. When your guest came to your house, you would assign your lowest slave, your newest slave, the lowest guy on your household to go and wash that person's feet because it was such a dirty and grotesque thing to do. But Simon the Pharisee, obviously we're not expecting Simon the Pharisee, someone who's uh, almost obsessive compulsive about being ceremonially clean, to wash Jesus' feet. But at least Simon could have assigned one of his slaves to do it. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Next, Jesus points out that Simon did not kiss Jesus. And back then, this was a this was a equivalent, this was a customary greeting. This was the equivalent of a modern-day handshake. You wouldn't even shake my hand when I walked into your house. I'm the guest of honor. Are you sure about that, Simon? Simon the Pharisee did not even greet Jesus with a customary kiss. But also, Simon did not anoint Jesus' head with oil. Back then, special guests, guests of honor, were anointed with olive oil on their foreheads. The anointing was a sign of respect. It was a sign of honor. It was a sign that you are our special guest this evening. Just like when you have a special guest over to your home, you want them to have the nicest seat. Oh no, sit here. But Simon the Pharisee did not anoint his quote-unquote special guest with oil. And this is the picture of the self-righteous Simon. He was a Pharisee. He was respected for what he did on the outside. But inside, he was a sympathetic critic, critical of this nameless woman because she had messed up and was damaged goods in his eyes, critical of Jesus because he doubted that Jesus was really a prophet. He doubted that Jesus was truly from God. And thirdly, Simon was a poor host. He wouldn't even do the common custom of greeting a guest. If Jesus was his guest of honor, this was a, more like a guest of dishonor. These three characteristics paint the portrait of someone who fails to recognize who Jesus really is. If Simon really thought Jesus was God, surely he would have treated Jesus better. Now, this episode, while memorable, while helpful, also has an application for us. So what can we learn from this episode? How does the truth of the passage inform and motivate our daily living. Well, look at what Jesus says to Simon himself, verses 40 to 47. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, 
One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now Jesus himself teaches Simon the Pharisee a lesson through a parable. <clears throat> Two debtors, the first owed 500 denarii, two years worth of pay, and the second owed 50 denarii, about two months of pay. Two years of pay, two months of pay. There's a huge difference. You lose your job for two months, Lord willing, you have a little bit of savings you can live off of. You lose your job for two years. That's a different story entirely. Both are relieved of the debt. And Jesus asks him, just plain and simple, who will love the lender more? And the Pharisee responds by saying the person who owed more should love more. Doesn't it make sense that way? He tentatively responds that way, and Jesus affirms that, yes, you're correct. That's what I was getting at. And verse 47 says that Jesus is saying that the nameless woman is the one who loved more because she was forgiven more. As a result of being forgiven her many sins, she loves Jesus so much more. And I want you to notice very carefully the tense of what Jesus says, what he actually says. He says that her sins have been forgiven, meaning that her sins had been forgiven in the past and that they continue to be forgiven up until now that her sins had been forgiven even before Jesus had spoken to her. And that is the key to her devotion. That is the underlying explanation for why she treats Jesus so well. It is because her sins had been, in the past, forgiven. This nameless woman is not trying to earn God's favor. She's not trying to earn Jesus' forgiveness. She's not trying to be good enough for God. She's not trying to kiss up to Jesus to get into heaven. She's already forgiven. Her display of affection, her lavish worship, her unabashed care for Jesus are the results of being forgiven. Simon would not order a lowly servant in his household to wash Jesus' feet. But this woman washes his feet with her own tears, with her hair, with an expensive, expensive bottle of perfume. Simon did not greet Jesus when he walked into the door. He did not give Jesus the customary kiss on the cheek. And so this woman kisses Jesus on his feet. Simon did not anoint Jesus' head with regular oil, just plain old olive oil. But this woman anointed Jesus' feet with costly perfume. Simon didn't show Jesus common courtesy of the day. But this woman lavished on Jesus all that she could offer. Whatever she had, the best of what she had on Jesus. And the difference is explained in who they thought Jesus was. 
In Simon the Pharisee's mind, Jesus was a fraud. He was a charlatan. He was, he was a false preacher. He was a fake. He was a counterfeit preacher. But in the nameless woman's eyes, Jesus was her Lord and her precious Savior. The only one who could save her from the penalty of her sins, which were many. And this woman is an example of someone who has been forgiven. Someone who recognizes the depth of her sin and even the, the deeper, the deepness, even the, the more, the, the deepness of God's forgiveness. She knows she's a sinner. She knows she's not worthy of God's forgiveness. And so she shows immense gratitude for Jesus' ministry of forgiveness and expresses that gratitude through her actions. Simon the Pharisee wouldn't even look that way. This nameless woman says, whatever I've got is yours. I came here and I wasn't expecting to wash Jesus' feet. I highly doubt she came with that idea in mind. She came to be with Jesus and worship Jesus. And when she realized that Simon the Pharisee had done Jesus a disservice by not even caring for him in a way that was customary of that time, she realized, Simon has mistreated my Lord and Savior. That can't happen, and not while I'm here. This woman is an example of someone who's been forgiven. This woman's actions speak so loudly that we don't even have to know her name. She's remembered by her actions. She didn't have some sort of spiritual secret, not some sort of extra knowledge. She didn't have some elusive elixir that we don't have access to. She simply had what all believers have through Christ, the forgiveness of sin. She's an example of someone who's been forgiven. She knows that she's a sinner and she shows that immense gratitude because she understands the wonder of forgiveness. That we would have this kind of love and devotion for our Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that we would have that kind of awesome realization of our deep sins and God's deeper forgiveness. I see, I think, um, you know, people ask me, uh, since I became a dad, I have two kids, two boys, and uh, they run me ragged. They run my wife even more ragged. <clears throat> they ask me, you know, so what has God been teaching you as a father? And I always respond by telling them, it is a daily reminder of how much God loves us. Because I would not let harm befall any of my children. Not a one. When I, when I go out to the park and I, see, and I see those kids out there playing with my, with my child and I see a big kid, you know, really big, you don't belong on this, you don't belong on this, on this gym here, you're way too big. I, I make sure, I'm watching like a hawk to make sure that that, large kid who looks like a bully is not going to touch my son. Because not as long as I'm around, I'm here, I'm watching for my son. 
I'm watching for his benefit. And it defies, it, is, it exceeds my imagination that God would willingly send his one and only son to die for people who are enemies of him. It is a constant reminder of a picture of the magnitude and depth of God's love that exceeds my own by so much. And those of you who are in this church, you, you have a lot of kids here. And you see the parents making sure that, hey, hey, don't go over there. Come back. And you see the love and care that is so apparent on, their, on the parents' faces. So how in the world can God sacrifice his one and only son for people who are enemies, for people who tell God to buzz off, for people who flagrantly disobey and don't care that we disobey? What depth of love? How much more could that be proven? How much more can we can we say, hey, God, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm starting to doubt your love here. Do you really know what's going on in my life? Do you know what we're going through? The cross and God's sacrificial love for us should put all questions to doubt forever. So the question for you this morning is, who are you more like and what is your worship like? Are you more like Simon the Pharisee or are you more like this nameless woman? Is your worship of God lavish? Is it with all that you've got or is it with whatever you can spare? Our, lav our worship should be so lavish and so loud that people think we're crazy. Yes, absolutely. If we truly remembered how much God's grace falls upon each of us, we would be reminded that whatever God asks us to do, it's a yes. We'll obey him in hard times and in easy times. Worship him when it is hurting and when it is easy. But the answer is always yes. Because God deserves that kind of lavish worship. That kind of unfettered, uninhibited devotion. May God's great love encourage us to continue to live for him. To obey him. Because of what he has done for us. Because of who he is. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder from your word this morning. Such a, such a contrast in characters. Simon, so distant from you, so unfeeling, so indifferent. And yet this nameless woman, 
who we don't need to know her name. We can tell so much by her actions. We ask, Lord, that you would make us more and more like this nameless woman. People who lavishly worship you with all that we are, not holding things back and not not worshiping you with whatever's spare, whatever's left over, whatever we have at the end of the day, but rather worshiping you with all that we are. Because that is what you deserve. Because that is how we can express our gratitude to you. In your son's name we pray.